everyone, my name is Dora and I'm so glad to be here speaking to you today as we continue our relationship series with Love One Another Part 3. So the first week Ruben spoke to us about love and um, what a definition of biblical love is like and how it's a very sacrificial love that gives of itself and it's selfless. And last week he spoke to us about singleness and how to be content and make the most of the season of singleness. And today I'm going to be talking to you about dating. Earlier this week, I really wrestled with what I wanted to talk about because the whole point of the series is to discuss God's vision for relationships, and I found myself kind of struggling with what God's vision for dating is. Whenever you want to discover God's vision for something, the best place to start searching is the Bible. But I was at a loss because dating isn't really a biblical concept. It's not something that is ever mentioned in the Bible because it didn't exist at that time, and while the biblical books were being written or canonized, the concept of dating just wasn't there. So I decided instead to do some research on the history of dating and I want to share some of the information that I learned for, with you guys before we really dive in. From the beginning of time up until the late 1800s people didn't really date. They just got married. In the beginning Adam went to sleep and when he woke up he found Eve next to him and God told him that she was his wife. After that marriages were pretty much arranged by parents on behalf of their children. When we think of arranged marriages, we often think of people being forced to be with someone that they don't love. And while some of these marriages were in fact forced upon the children, many of them weren't. And that's because this was a very common uh, process. And the idea behind these marriages and the process was that parents, having experienced marriage and life, and also knowing their children deeply, would be able to pick a suitable partner that would be a good fit for their child. And that would lead to a happy and loving relationship. While it seems strange and countercultural to us, this process was so widespread and it was very normal up until the late 1800s when a new idea of courtship began to take place. So in a courtship process, parents would invite eligible bachelors into their home to meet with their daughters in front of them. The women would meet with a few different men and then with their parents, they would agree on one man that they thought would be a good fit. And then this man would continue to visit the parental home and meet with the family and the woman until they were certain that they would be a good match and a marriage proposal was made. Couples didn't spend any time alone, and if ever left in a, alone in a room, the family was always nearby so that they could hear what was taking place. Finally, around the 1920s, dating was introduced. Because of the war and the economic climate during the Industrial Age, it became more common for women to go to work to help their families financially. This allowed women to meet men that they otherwise wouldn't have interacted with. Men began to ask women out on dates, and they would offer to pay for them to have dinner or for tickets to shows, based on the idea that these women were earning less than 50% of men's wages, so they couldn't afford to pay for themselves. This was actually such a strange concept at the time that these women were initially considered prostitutes because they were trading their time and romance for money, and some women were even arrested for this. However, dating slowly became more normalized, and it turned into a way for couples to get to know each other and find a partner to marry. In the 1960s, with the introduction of oral contraceptives, this is when the idea of dating began to morph from trying to find a husband to sexual and romantic liberation and being free to have short-term sexual relationships without any consequences. Dating was no longer a means to find a spouse, but it became a social venture of its own. People were encouraged to date around and get to know as many men or women as possible before settling down. This became even more popular as online dating became an option because now you can interact with people from across the world. Essentially, every eligible bachelor from 
all over the world was available to you at your fingertips. Dating began in the 1920s as a means to find a spouse. And the timeline looks something like this. Boy meets girl. Boy asks girl on a few dates. Boy asks girl to go steady. Boy asks girl to marry him. And then boy marries girl. Now, dating has become an end goal on its own. The timeline often looks something like this. Boy swipes right. Boy meets girl. Boy sleeps with girl. If boy likes her, he sleeps with girl again. Boy and girl continue to sleep together and date for a while. Boy moves in with girl. Boy maybe one day decides to propose to girl. Boy and girl get married. Sometimes children are tossed in there somewhere too, and often this process is repeated with multiple partners. So what do we as Christ followers have to do with any of this? How are we supposed to find a partner? Are we supposed to resort to arranged marriages and abandon dating altogether? I think the reality is that we live in this world and this is the cultural norm for finding a spouse. Instead of hiding from it, we need to redeem dating. We need to bring it back to what it originally was, a way for people to find a partner with the end goal being marriage. So that's what our, our sermon today is called. It's called Redeeming Dating. So instead of dating aimlessly because we're alone and in need of companionship, we need to date with marriage as our goal and our main intention. That's going to be the main thing I want to talk about today. But before we go any further, I just want to take a minute to pray. Father God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to be in your presence and to hear from you and to, to get a glimpse into what your vision is for dating and for marriage and for relationships as a whole. God, I thank you for um, everyone here. I thank you for everyone who is listening to this message. And I ask God that you would speak to us, that you would help us um, understand you and understand your word in a, in a deeper and um, in a deeper way today. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Now, because dating didn't really exist in biblical times, I'm going to share with you some of my top dating tips based on my own experiences and also based on some research that I have done. These tips are really biblical principles that can be applied to many areas of life, but they will specifically help you on your dating journey. Now, remember that these tips are for two believers who want to pursue a God-honoring relationship that can lead to marriage. So the first tip I have for you today is be authentic. We've all been there before. We start getting to know someone, start hanging out with them, and we're nervous. We want to be liked, and we want this person to know us and like us for who we are. But the pressure of getting them to like us generally takes over the desire to actually let them get to know us. We hide our flaws, and we highlight our good qualities. We feign an interest in what they like. We try not to get upset too much, or at least not show it when we do get upset. Sometimes we even go so far as to tell them everything that they want to hear about our future plans. You see this all the time. A long-distance couple talks about where they want to live after they get married. One person agrees to move, but all of a sudden, they change their mind as the wedding approaches. Or a guy pretends to be interested in all the same movies and TV shows as a girl so that they have something to talk about. A girl pretends to like a guy's friends or family until they're married, and then she tells him that she can't stand them. Some of these things may seem silly, but some of them are definitely more serious. One of the ways that we have to redeem dating is by being authentic. The greatest reason that we hide our true selves and we, we aren't authentic is because of our pride. We want to be liked, but we want to be liked so badly that our pride gets in the way. We worry about our self-image. 
We want to be perceived as the best, as the prettiest, the smartest, the funniest, the most easygoing. So there's no room for humility or for flaws and failure. But as believers, we can't let pride win. We're supposed to be humble in everything. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You can see here that we're commanded to be humble, especially when interacting with one another, and that God actually rewards us with grace when we are humble. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. That's because pride often leaves us embarrassed and ashamed because eventually the truth comes out and our flaws do appear. But humility is a form of wisdom. A humble person can't be embarrassed or disgraced because they're not afraid of their flaws. Finally, Philippians 2 verses 3 to 8 say this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You see, guys, Jesus was the perfect example of humility. He deserved all of the honor, all of the praise, and all of the glory, but he was willing to give his status up for the sake of those he loved. He went from being a king to being a servant. And we need to be more like Christ in everything we do and embrace humility. So what does that mean in the context of a dating relationship? Well, it means be real. Don't play games. Don't pretend to be interested in things you're not. Don't lie about your intentions or what you want. Guys, you don't need to wait three days to text her. And girls, you don't need to play hard to get. Be real about your feelings. Someone who truly desires to find a good spouse, not just have a little momentary fun, will appreciate your authenticity. And I can't stress this point enough. Do not lie about what you want or about your future goals. There is nothing more harmful to a relationship than someone who has lied and now the truth is coming out. Some people have told me before, you know, I wasn't lying. I didn't really know the answer and I didn't realize until later that this is what I want. If you don't know the answer to something, be honest and tell them that this is something you haven't considered and you need to think about. But in all honesty, there are some big things that you don't have to, that if you don't have the answers to, you are not ready to be in a relationship. Imagine you jump into a relationship and you've never really considered if you want to have kids. Your partner tells you that they never really want children and asks if you're okay with that. You answer, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess that would be fine. It would be okay. You've never really thought about it and you don't give it much thought after this conversation. Or even if you do, you think, well, I really love this person. I want it to work. I can give this up for them. I'm going to, I'm just going to suppress that feeling. Fast forward five years, you're married. And now you realize that the one thing really missing in your life is a child. You have an aching sensation that you want to be a parent. How do you fix this? Guys, relationships end, marriages end over issues like this. Which brings me to tip number two, engage in self-reflection self and personal growth. Let me say that again, engage in self-reflection and personal growth. Ruben talked about this last week when he spoke on singleness, but it's such a crucial issue that I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper. 
Throughout scripture, we are told to examine and test our hearts. But the verse I want to point out to you today is actually Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, I, I really love this verse because it truly depicts the state of our hearts and how our judgment can be so clouded by our emotions and we can be so conflicted. We always need to be engaging in self-reflection. And that means that there will be some level of self-reflection that needs to occur while you are in a relationship. You'll need to think through this individual's words and actions and do they align with the way that they present themselves? Do they align with your values and lifestyle? And most, most importantly, do they align with the way a follower of Christ should live? But you'll also need to examine your own desires and actions and constantly remind yourself to reflect Christ in everything you do. But don't wait until you're dating to do all of your self-reflection. Your emotions can really cloud this process for you, and it may take much longer and be much more painful for you during this time. See, I'm someone who really gained a lot from my previous dating experiences. I learned a lot about who I am and what I wanted and what I didn't want in a relationship. But the truth is, I didn't need to date to learn these things. I just didn't engage in healthy self-reflection. It wasn't until about a year before I met Ruben that I was challenged by a friend to really spend some time getting to know God and learning about myself and growing personally. During that time, I learned more about myself and what I needed in a relationship than I had during my previous dating experiences. And it was a much less painful process because I didn't need to end a relationship or suppress my emotions to do it. So what are some things that we need to think about before entering into a relationship? Well, one thing that Ruben always says is that marriage is missional. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next week when we talk about marriage. But for right now, you need to know what your mission in life is. What has God called you to? Has he called you to be a missionary overseas? Well, then you probably need to find someone who's ready to give up their life here and go on mission with you. Ruben was called to be a pastor in a church ministry. He knew that he needed someone who would understand church life and ministry and value it the same way he did. One of the first things that allowed us to click, actually, was our dedication to our church ministries. When he heard my experiences growing up with a father who was a pastor and a church planter, and how much I loved and learned from that experience, he knew I wasn't going to walk away scared by the prospect of spending seven days a week doing ministry, which is exactly what we do now. Another thing you need to work through is your past trauma and emotional baggage. We carry that trauma into our relationships, and they negatively impact our partners and ourselves. But we can ease that load when we work through some of these things during our time of singleness instead of waiting for our relationship problems to force us to work through them. You're going to work through them one way or the other. The question is, are you going to do it when it's more or less painful for you to, to do that? You also need to really reflect on your own identity and your personality. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? How do you process things emotionally? You need to know yourself well enough to understand who would be a good fit for you and how they can encourage you to move closer to Christ. Finally, the most important thing you need to reflect on is your relationship with Christ and your understanding of God's character. In other words, your theology. You don't need to be able to fully explain all of scripture well, but you should be able to understand what some of the main things you hold true are and be able to determine if someone's beliefs clash with yours. Remember that you won't be able to answer all of these things perfectly. But your goal is to grow in your understanding of each of these areas and spend time in prayer asking God to reveal things to you so that you can set yourself up for success in your next relationship. You don't have to wait until you're perfect to date because you'll never be perfect and so that time won't come. But also, don't date if you haven't tackled some of these issues head on.
Tip number three is date in community. This is probably one of the strangest, most countercultural ways that I believe we need to redeem dating. See, our culture tells us that dating is just between you and your partner. Spend as much time alone as possible getting to know each other. But one of the ways that we struggle to determine whether someone is the right person for us is that we make these decisions in isolation. We don't have a community to counsel us and support us, and we don't have the opportunity to learn from others. Proverbs, which is a book of the Bible that is all about wisdom, mentions one thing repeatedly, and I find it very interesting because it's so relevant to our topic today. It talks about the importance of wise counsel and advice and listening to those wise counselors and advisors. So here are just a few verses that talk about this. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 19, verses 20 to 21 say, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 15.31 says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Do you notice a trend? Wise people, people who make good decisions, they seek out the wisdom of other spiritually mature believers when it comes to their relationships. See, it's fun to spend time alone at a romantic dinner or just gazing into one another's eyes. But it's also super important to get your community involved and have them meet your partner and witness you two together as well. One of the ways I knew Ruben was the guy I wanted to marry was the affirmation I got from my family, my friends, and my church community. We used to go on dates alone, don't get me wrong. But often we would come, home, come back home to my parents' house and hang out with my family. Or we would go out with friends after church or we would go to church together and spend time chatting with people after the service. We even asked a, marriage, a married couple that we admired to mentor us and walk with us as we made decisions to move forward. And we got to know and spend some time with his pastor personally. We had so many people affirm that this is a good thing that, and that we were good for each other. And do you know how helpful that is when you face doubts? Especially as you approach your wedding and you start facing the reality of being tied to this person forever, you will struggle with doubt about whether you're making the right decision. Do you know how helpful it is that I had those conversations with my friends and family and they helped me, not based on their own experiences or based on what I've told them about Ruben, but based on how they have gotten to know them, uh, gotten to know him and what they themselves have observed about him. Dating in community doesn't have to be awkward and unromantic. It's just another way to help you discern if this person is right for you. If marriage truly is the goal of dating, then getting your community involved right away will only help you, not harm you. And what happens if you decide that this relationship isn't for you and you guys break up? Well, some people hide these things out of pride and feeling ashamed. But this is where your community steps in to help you again. Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 to 10 say this, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Woe to him who is alone when he falls. It, it just, it, it means that this person, like, there's so much sadness and there's so much, like, he's so poor that he doesn't have this person to help them. 
guys, don't let your pride get in the way of re receiving the help and support that your community can offer you. Your friend can lift you up, but only if you let them. Tip number four is set healthy boundaries. Boundaries are the not so fun, super serious part of relationships that nobody really wants to talk about. And trust me, I don't really like talking about it either. But they're so necessary for us to have healthy relationships. When most people think of boundaries, they think of it almost like a border or a line that you can't cross. You can come right up to the line and you can dance around the line as long as you don't cross over to the other side. This is why I really like the imagery of guardrails that Andy Stanley uses. He describes the guardrails that are along the highway and how they're meant to actually protect us from harm, like falling off a cliff or driving into oncoming traffic. People don't play around with guardrails and say, well, let me get as close as possible to the guardrail. No, they stay, they stay far away. Even when you're driving, sometimes if you're like, if you're not careful and you swerve towards the guardrail, you will swerve away as, again because you don't want to hit that guardrail. You could crash into the guardrail and that would still be painful. It would be less painful than if the guardrail wasn't there and you fell off a cliff because you'd probably die in that case, but it's still painful and scary. One of my favorite examples of this is in scripture and it's one of the most important boundaries we can set. It's 1 Corinthians 6.18 which says, flee from sexual immorality. See, many people often think of sexual immorality as any other type of temptation. And they think, well, I can overcome temptation. I can endure. I can deny myself from giving into it. But 1 Corinthians 6.18 doesn't tell you to overcome the temptation of sexual immorality or to endure it. It literally says to flee. When it comes to physical relationships, we need to set clear guardrails or boundaries. Don't hang out with your girlfriend in her bedroom when her roommate isn't home and start making out on her bed, but think, hey, we're not going to have sex, so it's fine. This is the attitude of getting as close as possible to the line without crossing it. Instead, have the attitude of flee. Set those boundaries. Have those conversations. Maybe you shouldn't be alone in the house or in the car or late at night. Maybe you shouldn't make out or kiss or even cuddle. Maybe you shouldn't use terms like sexy to describe one another. I mean, I hate being the boundary police, and so I'm not going to define exactly what that looks like in each of your lives. But it's so incredibly important that each of you think through your relationship and what could lead you to be tempted to do more and discuss these things and set firm boundaries that stop you. This is true even of emotional boundaries. So often as Christians, we think that we just need to be careful with our bodies, but we need to be careful with our minds and our hearts as well. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Guys, we can be so careful with our physical boundaries, but let our emotional boundaries get the best of us. One of the easiest ways we do that is in our thought life. We daydream and we jump ahead. The person we kind of like soon becomes the person we want to marry. We picture ourselves on our wedding day, raising children, going on family vacations, etc. What? How did that happen? How did we just skip like a hundred steps? We often let our friends do this too. Friends, if you know someone who is single or dating, be very careful with the words you say. So often we find ourselves excited and we get caught up with discussing these things with our friends that we build these unrealistic imaginary relationships up in our heads and it only hurts us later. When your friend is interested in another person or has feelings for them, engage them in healthy conversation. 
I hear so many people commenting on what that person is possibly doing or might be thinking or might be feeling without having any real knowledge of these things. Oh, she must like you because she's giving you more attention than anyone else. Oh yeah, she's definitely flirting. Oh, he's totally interested because he texted you first. And then it turns out that they were just kind of being nice and friendly. They're not really interested in dating. Stop it. You're only hurting your friends more. You're planting seeds that they will continue to water and grow in their hearts. They'll be so much harder to remove if it doesn't work out. So many relationships take place just in our imaginations and then we end up hurt and struggling to heal as if it was a real relationship. Guard your hearts. Take every thought captive. Don't spend so much time in your daydreams or chatting about that person you kind of like. If you kind of like them, kind of get to know them, kind of pray about them. See if you are ready to pursue the next step with them and then go talk to them about it, not everyone else. There's a level of daydreaming and imagining and even discussing things with your friends that is okay because it helps you decide if you think this person is a good fit for you. But don't allow it to go too far when you're over, overly invested. Finally, when it comes to boundaries, I just want to add that we also need to be setting good boundaries with our friends, especially in male-female friendships. Whether you're single, dating, or married, nothing irks me more than hearing that a guy and a girl are calling each other best friends. The only best friendship of the opposite sex you should have is your spouse. Close male and female relationships are also a completely new social construct that is not biblical. These are potential mates and have the ability to develop feelings as such and should be treated with much care and caution, especially because the healthy boundaries of your married relationship would not allow you to have such close male and female relationships because they would be harmful to your marriage. I know Ruben would not be okay if I started calling some guy my best friend and I wouldn't be okay if he did the same thing with another girl. You're allowing for yourself to build a level of intimacy with someone of the opposite sex that is not your spouse. It's a level of intimacy that they should not have and that they don't deserve to have. See, it's okay for us to have close friends who are of the opposite sex, but it's also wise to handle them carefully and set boundaries about what kinds of things you discuss, how late you chat, how much time you spend alone, etc. If you're finding yourself in a situation where your best friend is someone of the opposite sex, you need to set some new boundaries and you need to begin to look for other girls or guys that you can grow closer to. You see, 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So with that in mind, are you allowed to be a girl with a boy best friend? Yeah, sure, I guess. But is it helpful? Will it build you both up? The resounding response that almost every pastor, counselor, and psychologist will give you is no, it will not. Finally, my last tip for you today, so tip number five, is dating and engagement is not marriage. If you haven't understood it by now, dating is not biblical. And so I can't even find you a Bible verse that tells you that dating is not biblical. But what I can tell you is that today's form of dating is not the same as biblical marriage. Genesis 2.24 describes marriage like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's a new bond formed between this man and woman that is even stronger than what you have with your family, with your parents and your siblings. It's the bond that comes with commitment, and it ties them together as one flesh. 
when you're dating, your partner is not your spouse. The goal of dating is to find a spouse, but that means you're not yet tied to that person. If you find yourself in a dating relationship and you feel like you are not a good match and you've tried to approach the relationship in a healthy way, that's okay. Some people stay in these relationships out of a sense of guilt or obligation. Some people stay because they don't want to start over or they feel like they've wasted all these years. Some people stay because they've crossed some physical boundaries or because they're afraid to be alone. You don't need to. In fact, you shouldn't stay in those relationships. End the relationship sooner rather than later because it will hurt you and your partner more in the long run. Dating is not marriage. You are not bound. You're free to go. You see, God desires for us to be in healthy marriages that reflect Christ's love for the church. And for us to do this, we need to be wise and mindful as we date. To redeem dating, we need to approach relationships with these healthy guidelines, keeping in mind that marriage is the end goal, not just ending our current loneliness. It's not about right now, it's about the future. So I encourage you all, if you are currently in a relationship, work through these tips and see where you can bring your relationship forward in a God-honoring manner. And if you're currently single, make the most of this season and ask God for the strength and boldness so you can approach your next dating relationship in this countercultural way. Let's pray.